Today, Steve is going to be finishing Hebrews 9. He's going to be working through verses 11 through the end of verse 28. And before he does that, he's asked that I read Exodus chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open them to Exodus chapter 24, and we will read the entire chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said to him. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua his aid, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Well, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning. Uh, this is our last Sunday in April. Uh, certainly when we started uh, 2020, none of us would have thought that we wouldn't actually be able to meet or gather together at all on a Sunday morning in April. Uh, Good Friday and Easter were this month. And we've, well, you, you know what we've been experiencing. Uh, so here we are again, though, recognizing you know, that Paul once says you know, that the word of God is not bound. And you know, wherever we are, we're still able to worship God together by the Spirit and through the word. So this morning we're going to be looking at uh, Hebrews 9. 11 to the end of the chapter. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 10 and really took a bit of a tour through Exodus uh, to try to remind ourselves of the significance of the things that the author was discussing. This morning, we're carrying on 
the argument. In verse 10, he sort of ended by saying that you know, th these were external regulations that were applying until the time of the New Order, but now the New Order is here. And in verse 11, he picks that up. Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 11, this is the word of God. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary, then, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once, to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is a big text in the sense of, uh, not so much in the sense of length, but in the sense of what it's teaching. Now, a lot of these things, we, we sort of, seen a little bit already in the book of Hebrews. 
But here, uh, there, there's sort of there's there's a bit of a heightening in terms of the presentation of the argument. Uh, in contrast to verses one through ten, which are talking about the tabernacle preparing the way for Christ, pointing forward to Christ, foreshadowing uh, the coming of Christ. Verse 11 tells us that there are certain things that are already here. Now, some manuscripts will say uh, that when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are to come, but likely here at this point, uh, the, the textual tra tradition is better as the good things that are now already here. That is, chapter 10 will tell us a little bit about some of the things that are coming. Here, this section of chapter 9 is telling us that we are in the age of fulfillment. Uh, there all already there are many of these wonderful blessings. These fulfillment promises are, are here already. Uh, there's more to come. There, there's greater fulfillment yet in the future, but already we experience sort of a, a down payment of these things. Because of what Christ has done, the new covenant is inaugurated. The new covenant has begun. And those incredible promises that you find in that new covenant, in, in Jeremiah 31, but then picked up in, in Hebrews 8, you know, verses 8 through 12. You go back and you read some of those promises. You know, the, the interiority of the covenant is on the law, is on the mind, and on the heart. God is the God of his people. You, you don't need to teach someone to know the Lord because they all know him. There's, forgi there's forgiveness for sins. Their wickedness is not remembered anymore. These are the great promises of the new covenant. And, and these are the promises that are already here because Christ is the high priest of this new covenant era. Now, in order to bring these things to fulfillment now, in order to provide for uh, sort of consummated fulfillment in the future, it was important that Christ actually have a ministry not just here on earth, but one that was acceptable to God in heaven itself. He had to, to minister on earth, but in a way which didn't just deal with the shadows of earth, but dealt with the reality of heaven. So the author tells us that he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not a part of this creation. You remember from last week when we talked about Exodus, and Exodus is very clear. God commanded the people, build it exactly the way I've told you to build it. The idea is that God's not just a control freak or a micromanager. Uh, there is a sense in which God can say, just do it because I said so. and we're, we're responsible to obey. But the reason that God is sort of so persnickety about these details is that every detail matters. Every detail every is symbolically charged. It, it's that you deviate from this pattern that God has established, and all of a sudden the symbolism doesn't quite work the way it's supposed to. The tabernacle system was predicated on, in sort of instantiating the presence of God and, and, and giving a, a, an earthly replica of the heavenly reality where God lives. Here we're told, an earthly high priest you know, could, could serve in the earthly tabernacle, but Jesus actually serves in the heavenly reality on which that earthly tabernacle was based. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by human hands, not part of this creation. And then verses 12 through 14, 
uh, we'll talk a lot about blood. Uh, blood, not just the red liquid, but, re uh, but blood uh, sort of symbolically or metaphorically, by, by synecdoche actually, uh, it, it's the part that represents the whole. And so the blood of Christ, it's not like, it's not like there was something magical in, in the, the red liquid in his veins, as if somehow, you know, his, his flesh is, is not what provides us for, you know, it's, it's not what provides atonement, but, but it's somehow sort of his hemoglobin does or something like that. It, it, it's not the red liquid. It's symbolic of his entire life poured out in death. So when we read about the blood of Christ, that blood sort of stands as the part presented as the whole. It's symbolic of the pouring out of his entire life, body, soul, spirit, mind, every faculty uh, given in atonement, the entirety of Christ consecrated and committed. I mean, when we talk about you know, wars and the atrocities and the bloodshed in war. Of course, we, we mean far more than the fact that, that, that the blood sort of flows out of people's bodies. Bloodshed refers to the, the loss of the entire life, you know, the carnage and the horror of that. And so the blood of Christ as our substitute, again, is symbolic of all that he experienced, all that he committed uh, to God on our behalf. He didn't come in by the means of uh, the blood of goats and calves, but he entered through his own blood. And because he did this, he has bought for us, he's obtained for us eternal redemption. Uh, eternal redemption, of course, is eternal sort of a modifier of redemption. So redemption, of course, means to buy back, to purchase, to acquire uh, you know, say you, you might get a coupon and it says, you know, you could redeem this coupon for, for whatever it is uh, that you want, uh, or whatever the coupon is for, rather. So uh, to, to redeem something is, is to trade something in and get something else. Christ redeems us. He, he trades himself. He, he, he substitutes himself into our place to purchase us for God, I mean, the, the language of redemption actually in this in the biblical culture is often used in slave markets. To redeem someone uh, was to buy them out of slavery, to, to purchase them out, and the idea here is is in many ways that that Christ purchases us from slavery by substituting Himself in our place. He exchanges places with us. We deserve to die, and Christ literally substitutes himself in our place. He redeems us through his own blood, through his own life. And so the redemption, our, him purchasing us to belong to God, is eternal. That is, its effects are eternal. It lasts forever. This is not a temporal redemption. I mean, you can imagine how grateful you'd be if you were uh, being sold into slavery. Well, no, you, you, I mean, you can't imagine how grateful you'd be, but you can try. So try to imagine how grateful you would be if you were about to be sold into slavery and the highest bidder you know, paid top dollar for you, bought you to belong to them, and then used that purchase power 
to set you free. You'd be grateful every day of your life. You'd never forget. You'd never get over that. Christ has redeemed us. And if something far worse, and this is not this is not mitigating the horrors of slavery. But Christ has redeemed us from something far worse than physical bondage. And he hasn't just given us a reprieve that is temporal. He's, he's given us, he's purchased us and then provided for us, given us a redemption that is eternal in its consequences. We are set free from slavery to sin and fear and guilt and shame and the devil and the world and death itself. We are set free from all of that forever. The redemption of Christ is eternal, and it's ours because he didn't come through the earthly tabernacle with the blood of calves and goats. He went through the perfect tabernacle. He ministered in heaven itself to provide atonement through his blood so that we could belong to God forever. How much more then, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So, so not only are we redeemed, but as Christ presents himself to God through the Holy Spirit, what we find is we're redeemed eternally, and then we're also so cleansed that we can actually begin to serve God ourselves. We have been made holy so that we can serve the living God, which we ought to do gratefully because he's redeemed us. And the idea here is, is that Jesus has purchased you, he's freed you, so you can with joy and liberty serve him. And you have perfect freedom in Christ. You are free in Christ. As Christ's slave, as Christ's servant, you serve him in freedom. It's a rich paradox that we find our freedom in submission to the living God. But what an amazing thing, though, that, our, that we've been cleansed, our consciousness have been cleansed from acts that lead to death. In other words, the way we've been living deserves death. But Christ has redeemed us from that, and his atoning power is so, it, it, it's so transformative, spiritually and psychologically, mentally and emotionally, that your guilty conscience, knowing that actually you deserve death, Conscience is, is, is cleansed. You are now righteous. Those, those acts are done. The, the penalty's been paid. Your guilt has been atoned for. Your sin is removed. Now you have a clear conscience. Believe it or not, you can have a clear conscience. One of the greatest gifts of grace. Because of what Christ has done in cleansing you. You can have a clear conscience because you're actually clean in the sight of God, so that you can start serving him. Verse 15 says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So here, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're told four things. Christ is the mediator. Uh, he's the one who represents us to God. He's the mediator of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, 
he died as a ransom to set us free. Or sorry, he died as a ransom. The third thing, the fourth thing is that he, he has set us free from sins. So Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. And part of the new covenant promises is that everyone in the new covenant community has their sins forgiven. Well, how is that possible? It's possible because of Christ's death. He's our mediator. The new covenant promises are here. It's fulfilled. Uh, he died to ransom us, to redeem us. And we've been set free from our sin. Now, thinking about the death and blood of Christ causes our author to start talking about a covenant or a will in verse 16. This is, there's a long, long standing debate in New Testament scholarship, not just this generation, but for centuries, uh, about what exactly the author means here verses 16 uh, through 22. The, the issue for us is that uh, in the, the New Testament Greek language, you have one word that can be translated as either covenant or will. Uh, and so the question here is, the author's been talking about covenant in verse 15, and, and so much of Hebrews is about covenant. What does diatheke mean in verse 16? Is it still talking about covenant, or is it now talking about a will? Because one of the arguments would be in, in verse 16, in the case of a diatheke, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. But that's not the case in terms of a covenant. In, in order for a covenant to be enforced, you don't need to prove the death of the one who made it. And yet the entire context is covenantal. He's been talking about covenant for chapters. So, so how is it to be taken here? Well, generally, it, it's, it's, it's a reasonable uh, position to take that when a bunch of people who are a lot smarter than you are and a bunch of people who are godlier than you are and a bunch of people who have dedicated their lives to studying the New Testament in a way that you haven't, when they're completely split, in terms of the best way of taking this text, best way of translating this word, I think it's just sort of reasonable to assume that your odds of uh, sorting it out are probably about zero. So I'm not going to tell you, you know, the way of taking this, although I can give you a little bit of just a, a quick little snapshot summary uh, of some of the, the options. The first, the way that a lot of our translations bring it across, probably the, and the majority of you today, is that the author starts talking about a will. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. That actually is just true. And so then you're off to a good start. And the rest of 16 sort of does back up that uh, translation option. Because a will is enforced only when somebody has died. Also true. Not, not the case of the covenant, necessarily. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Now you're into covenant, though. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, 
you can see as you move through the text, the first bit does sound like you're talking about a will. The second bit, you're definitely talking about the first covenant. You're not talking about, you're not talking about the first will or the, the will that you know was inaugurated with the shedding of uh, with the sprinkling of blood of, of bulls and calves and all of the rest. You know, Moses did not proclaim the, the law of the first will. It was the law of the first covenant. So it could be, you know, that this text sort of moves from thinking about death bringing something into, into force like a will, to then thinking about how death brought the covenant into force. And that is actually what happens, of course, in the old covenant era. That is, some covenants do, interestingly enough, require sort of the, the, the death oath. Uh, it was very common, actually, when kings would conquer other nations, uh, they would cut an animal into two pieces. Uh, they, they'd separate the one piece from the other, and of course, if you cut an animal in half, it's not precisely a sanitary thing, so all the blood and guts would flow into the middle. So you'd cut the animals in half, all the blood would be in the middle, and the conquered party would have to walk through that, that blood and gore. And the idea was symbolically this. You break the terms of the covenant, and I'm going to come find you, and you are going to end up just like these animals that you've walked through. I'm going to do that to you. It, it was a bit of a, a motivator not to break the covenant for those who were conquered uh, nations. But you remember that the same thing happens with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. The, the animals are split. And then Abraham falls asleep. And symbolically, the presence of God passes through that, that path of blood. And, it, and it's the most amazing thing because what God is doing is God is symbolically showing Abraham this covenant will be fulfilled. And if this covenant is broken, I will die. It's one of the most powerful images in all of the Bible. So sometimes covenants were inaugurated with death. The old covenant at Sinai was sort of inaugurated with a sprinkling of blood, sprinkling of water to cleanse the people and the tabernacle. Now there's another view here, which is a little bit more specific. That is that the whole text is talking about the covenant, uh, or the covenant at Sinai specifically. So it's not just covenant in general, it's the Sinai covenant in particular. Because breaking the Sinai covenant did in fact bring death. Now, there's a lot more that could be said. I mean, there's a ton more that could be said in terms of the intricacy of arguments for all these different positions. Frankly, this is generally the point that's being made, no matter how you take it, uh, in terms of uh, verbal translation. The general point is this. The author is saying, listen, death was needed to bring about the ultimate purification and promise of forgiveness of sins. Death was needed to actually bring the, the, the redemptive plan of God and covenant of presence into effect. You could not have the great promises of forgiveness fulfilled, verse 22, without the shedding of blood. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In other words, this new covenant in Hebrews 8 is only possible because of death. And the death is, by, is, is the death of the incarnate Son of God, the high priest in sacrifice. Because there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, verse 23 says, It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. That is, again, it's not a temporal old order sacrifice that's required. It's a transcendent sacrifice that purifies heaven. We're told that Christ entered into God's presence. Verse 25, he did not, or for, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. In other words, Christ did this once for all. So this yearly day of atonement pageant, it's once for all. And the high priest would offer blood, but it wasn't his own blood. Offer the blood of, of bulls and goats. Here, this high priest in heaven itself offers his own blood. If it wasn't for this once-for-all efficacy, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all, the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The culmination of the ages here means all of time hinges on this. This is the goal of time. This is the goal of the redemptive history. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And verse 27, these are the kinds of things that used to be preached a little bit more in, in former generations, I think. It is destined for man to die once and after that to face the judgment. That's true. We're not stuck in an endless cycle of reincarnation. We live, we die once. And after we die, we stand before God. And we give an account. We give an account for our lives, what we did, what we didn't do. We give an account. You get one shot at this. You live your life. You die. You face the judgment. That's a terrifying prospect. That makes you realize how much you want a savior. And so the author hastens on to remind you that yes, you'll die once and then face the judgment, but don't forget, Christ is coming back. He will appear a second time. The first time he came in humility, I mean, yes, he, he had glory. We saw this last week. John 1, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we've seen his glory, but, but his glory was veiled in, in, in sort of the human flesh. You could see his glory if you had spiritual eyes to see, but most people didn't see it. No, this time he doesn't come in humility with veiled glory to bear sin. This time he doesn't come to die. It's appointed for man to die once, and Christ was fully God and fully man. He only dies once. And so now, because he lives again, he only die once, he will live forever as eternal life. 
And so the next time he comes, it's not, it's not as the son to bear sin and guilt and shame and death. He comes to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So you wait and you hope. Oh, you hope so much. The waiting can be hard. You walk by faith, not by sight. And you know he came once to bear sin. He comes again to bring us home. He comes again because he is the Savior. He's already done it. His sacrifice has already been accepted by the Father. He's already purified heaven. He's gone there to prepare a place for us, John 14. And at just the right time, he's going to take us to live with him in glory. And then, and then not only that, actually, it's a bit inaccurate. The idea is that he's, we're not just, he doesn't just come and take us to live with him in glory. The idea is that he actually purifies and transforms the entire universe. The new heaven and new earth, that the symbol at the end of Revelation isn't that we get to be taken up to heaven. The, the symbol in Revelation at the very end is that God comes down to earth. A, a material, spiritual world. He lives with us forever. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because Christ came the first time to bear sin. To be our Savior. And he comes the second time to consummate our salvation because we have an eternal redemption through his blood. And may God help us to may God help us to get to get it, to understand it, and to adore him for what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. May God bless you this week as we transition from a very different April than we ever could have imagined, as we transition from April into May, may God help us uh, to worship him and to keep walking forward in spirit and in truth.